Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, honey, I'm home. Don't call me honey. We're bees. I shouldn't call you honey. Never mind. Do you hear that? Hear what? The buzzing. Isn't there always buzzing? It's those new bees who moved into the cell next door. They're into this whole metal core buzzing day and night. It never stops. You want me to put on some music? We could listen to Sting. Don't even. It's just that buzzing is... I mean, I think we're all brought up buzzing. My mom and dad buzzed. I'm pretty sure even my name is Buzz. It is, but Buzz, this used to be such a nice comb. We moved here because of the atmosphere. Plus, it has a Dorby. Who does nothing. And then we have to tip him at Christmas. Hey, keep it down in there. You want to go out for pollen? There's that new purple coneflower place that everyone's buzzing about. Ugh, you said the B word again. No, give me some space. This is a cell in a honeycomb. It's so hard to get me time. Or even bee time. Let's listen to this show. And now he's disputing all the charges made against him by the B2 movement, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I do dispute those charges. I mean, look, when you see like a blown up picture of the bees, they look really kind of fuzzy and furry and you you do want to pet them. But I basically have tried not to do that. Uh, So I I, whatever they're buzzing about me, it's just not true. We're going to talk about bees today. Let me just say a couple of things to kind of set this up, too. So I actually have this theory that every single public radio show early on in in its existence and I might add if there's a change of host. Uh, of the show does a bee show because bees they're just sort of natural for public radio they're really interesting there's a lot you can say about them uh, and, and obviously they connect strongly to our concerns about the environment um, so you just do a bee show right because it's just like why wouldn't you um, so we did that we did that sometime during our first year which was a long time ago uh, eight or nine years ago so we're doing now we're going to do another bee show and the reason we're going to do the bee show actually is very specifically because of a piece I can't remember how I came upon it, although, as many of you know, I'm a big Atlas Obscura fan. And so suddenly there was this piece uh, by Natasha Frost, uh, published in December, called What's It Like to Be a Bee? And I immediately got the Thomas Nagel reference because I'm that kind of nerd. And we got talking. We thought, let's do another bee show. So, But before we go to Natasha, by the way, like we should just do a series of shows with Natasha Frost because so many of her articles are really interesting and the kinds of things that we think about here too. Before we do that, let's just quickly address the concerns that came up in that intro. And to do that, we have Michael Smith, who's the co-author of a new study published in Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology, uh, Larger But Not Louder, Bigger Honey Bee Colonies Have Quieter Combs. He's joining us, I think, from Konstanz, Germany. Michael Smith, welcome to our show. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you might have heard those bees complaining about all the noise uh, in their hive or in their comb, in their combs anyway. This is something that you looked at, and, and the title of your study kind of gives away its finding. But just tell us what you did find about this. 
Yeah, so uh, I mean, actually, the the little the, the intro that I heard, I was like, wow, this is actually this is this is quite a nice intro. It actually reminds me of a a Gary Larson cartoon uh, where there's these social insects and they're just one of them's yelling like the incessant buzzing. I just can't stand it. I just can't stand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so actually, the the basis of this experiment was was part of my PhD thesis, and my PhD thesis was all about how individuals sense the size of their colony. And one of the things that, you know, kept coming up time and time again is, well, you know, bigger colonies, vibrations, maybe, you know, they just sound louder. Uh, and that seemed like a pretty straightforward idea, you know, okay, the, the more bees are there, the, the louder it should be. You have these substrate vibrations, the comb is vibrating. So if you have more bees on a comb, presumably it will vibrate more and you'll kind of essentially have a louder substrate vibration. Uh, so I paired up with an engineer and we used these accelerometers to actually measure the vibrations in the comb, and uh, you know, as we're actually collecting these data, I'm noticing something. It's like it just—it kind of kept bugging me. I was like, "Wow, it seems like the vibrations are actually going down the more bees are on this comb." Uh, so you can imagine me, you know, collecting these data and you know, kind of analyzing them, and every single time, time and time again, it's like, "Wow, the more bees are on there, the the less the comb is vibrating." And in a way, it's kind of like it's a quieter comb. And uh, it, it kind of eventually dawned on me, like, "Wait a second." the bees are actually somehow damping the vibrations and that the more bees are on this comb, uh, they're in a way with their bodies, they're actually kind of like, like, kind of like gripping the comb is what we think, and they're actually kind of making it vibrate less. Um, and the reason this would be important uh, for honeybees is, like you mentioned in the, uh, in the intro, is that if you had more and more and more bees on these combs, the vibrations get louder and louder and louder, the bees essentially wouldn't be able to hear themselves think in a way. And, and I don't really mean they couldn't hear themselves think, but bees do use comb vibrations to communicate. So, for example, the waggle dance to advertise where new food sources are. Um, they use comb vibrations to communicate where those new food resources are. And if the comb were so, so loud that they couldn't actually detect those, they would actually be at a disadvantage. Uh, but it turns out, actually, the more bees you pile on that comb, which is pretty much what we did, uh, actually, the quieter the comb becomes. So the bees have, quote-unquote, an interest in, in making this happen and making the, the comb get quieter and, and not have an augmentation of noise as you add more and more bees. I, I guess the question is, and when we get to Natasha, we'll be thinking about bees pretty individualistically a lot of the time, but obviously there's a phrase, hive mind, which we now apply to all kinds of non-bee situations. Is there, I mean, is it, is it possible for you to know or conjecture about, like, how would the bees figure out to do that? Oof, gosh, that's a that's a that's a problem that would would have been dealt with with evolution, uh, and you know, and and although bees are always interesting to think of as individuals, I'm I'm really uh, I'm definitely on the colony side of life. Uh, so when I when I think and when I do experiments with bees, uh, I often think about the colony as a whole because that whole colony can actually be thought of uh, as a single organism, as what we would call a superorganism. So. I guess in the same way that you could think of, you know, individual cells in a body as each having an individual identity and all these individual cells, uh, but those cells make up a single person. Uh, the way I think of bees is that, you know, each individual bee is an individual, but she's making up this large colony, which is the the one honeybee colony. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I guess to answer your question, you know, could I think, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as that, you know, that they're, they're doing this on purpose. Uh, in this, I mean, saying purpose is kind of a, a difficult thing right. for scientists to say, uh, but it's definitely, what, what I would definitely say is that it's a, a simple and elegant solution to a potential problem. Uh, 
And, you know, and the, the critic might say, well, Michael, you know, you just didn't know enough about these comb vibrations. And that's, you know, hey, that's perfectly, that's perfectly valid. I'm, you know, uh, I ain't mm. no Einstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but it was definitely an interesting uh, result and it really uh, kind of cool, cool thing to investigate. Right. And so, the, I mean, the argument would be that bees who, for whatever reason, wound up doing this and began incrementally to develop this behavior that did dampen sound, they just did better. They survived more. They passed more of their genes on to subsequent generations of bees. This was an adaptive behavior that helped a bee uh, have more bees uh, as opposed to dying before it did. Right. That, that's sort of what that would be the Darwinian explanation. And you know, and and that's that's perfectly uh, accurate. And that you know, bees do a lot of amazing things. That you know, when you look at it, you know, if you look at a waggle dance to think like, holy smokes, where did that come from? You know, it's 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 a lot of cases. It's small little steps that kind of build upon each other, and eventually you've got this amazing, beautiful superorganism that can do uh, crazy things that you know we're always surprised by. All right, Michael Smith, thank you so much for straightening all that out for us. Um, now, yeah, we're going to get to the individual bee, uh, which is going to mean we're turning to Natasha Frost. I said, As I said, her article in Atlas Obscura kind of got us going about this. It begins, you're a honeybee. Despite being around 700,000 times smaller than the average human, you've got more of almost everything. Instead of four articulated limbs, you have six, even with each with six segments. Your bees, bees' knees sadly don't exist. You're exceptionally hairy. Your straw-like tongue stretches far beyond the end of your jaw, but has no taste buds on it. I'm skipping over some things. You've got five eyes, two of them called compound eyes. Made, uh, are, uh, they're made up of 6,900 tiny lenses. Take up half of your face. Uh, I could keep going. She certainly does. Uh, Natasha Frost, uh, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. So we can talk all day long about what the hive does, but you got very interested in what it's like to be a bee and, and building on that thought experiment of Thomas Nagel, who wrote what it's like to be a bat. One of the arguments you're making is there's something that it's like to be a bee. It's not like nothing. So you want to know not what it would be like for one of us to be a bee, but what it's like for a bee to be a bee. What, what do we know about that, if anything? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of an unanswerable question because we're so limited by our own imagination. But we increasingly, it looks like it feels like something to be a bee. And that sounds like a kind of a wishy-washy thing to say. But if you think, let's take a, a Roomba vacuum cleaner, which does, um, which behaves in some respects like an animal. It moves around, it makes decisions, it appears to move autonomously. We don't think that there's anything it's like to be a Roomba vacuum cleaner. It's just dark inside. Whereas it seems as though even if a bee isn't buzzing around going, gosh, it's a nice day, look at that beautiful flower, there is something it is like to be it. Right. So what we can do to begin piecing together little tiny parts of the answer to that question is talk about what bees know or what bees can perceive and understand. So bees can be trained to go through mazes, and when they go through mazes, they can follow color marks. You know, if, if one color says turn left and one color turns, says turns right, they so we do know that, right, Natasha, that, that first of all, they don't have a lot of neurons, but they can figure out how to do stuff and they can do things like recognize colors. Yeah, absolutely. And bees can do all sorts of really exciting, clever things. Like there was a really brilliant experiment done last year at Queen Mary University in London where they 
showed bees, a plastic bee scoring goals with a tiny plastic football for a sugar water award. And the bees thought, the bees appeared to think, great, we'll do this too and we'll get the reward. And that's kind of amazing that bees are so clever and can learn to do things like that. Right. So spend another minute or so on that. So what were, I mean, the bees were basically learning by imitation to do something like this? That, that seems to be the case, yeah. And it's such a, an unnatural thing to do. There's no kind of natural reason why bees should ever be scoring goals or playing with footballs. But by seeing something which they seem to think was a bee, um, they, they were able to follow it and, you know, reap the reward. Well, yeah, so, I mean, they can do it to get a reward. I actually did see a little film uh, as part of a TED Talk, uh, the guy who was trying to build the bee brain. Um, he just showed a little TED Talk of a bee moving a ball to get uh, a little bit of sugar water under that. So I, we know, anyway, that they can, I mean, most of this is about pursuing rewards as opposed to the sheer joy of playing soccer, right? Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> And so what happens, uh, I mean, we know other things. What happens when you give uh, bees cocaine? Oh, that's really, it's kind of interesting. If you give bees cocaine, they start, they dance way more than they ordinarily dance. And they also get much worse at estimating how much nectar they've got. They, all of a sudden, they get quite kind of bombastic about how much nectar they think they've got. And then if you take the cocaine away from them, um, if you stop giving it to them, they go through withdrawal in quite a similar way to human beings. Right. So basically, they turn into real jerks. They start talking to you about some board game they've invented and that they're a Taurus astrologically and that their dad used to hit them. And they, they can't calm down. Um, and so, they can't stop dancing. <laughs> and they can't stop dancing. So we got to talk about this dancing. So Because we've now, both you um, and Michael have mentioned the waggle dance. Uh, you're going to have to explain for people who haven't listened to five other public radio shows about this. What is the waggle dance? So the waggle dance is a bee finds some nectar and she does the waggle dance to tell the other bees that there is some nectar and that for example she might need help with it she might need help bring it back she might need help processing it and there are lots of different kinds of information that are communicated through this dance um, and some of them have to do with saying there's a lot of nectar or some of them have to do with saying I need a lot of help and um, yeah and, and there's only so much we know about it at this point but it seems as though um, the bees understand this kind of complex system of communication and the various things that it is trying to say. Right. If we if we were, unfortunately, this is radio, so we can't show people a video of this. <laughs> if we were watching a bee doing a waggle dance, what basically would it look like? Um, it would depend what they were doing. But I, okay, so um, one dance which bees do is called a tremble dance. And so foragers find a whole lot of nectar. They've brought it back. And they, they want to say, I can't process this into honey alone. I need some help. And so as I recall, what the, what the dancing bee will do is they'll walk quite slowly around the hive and they start to kind of tremble and quiver their legs. And they can do that for sometimes more than an hour. And at the same time as they're kind of quivering their legs, their whole body is trembling backwards and forwards and from side to side. They're kind of shaking. Um, and somehow the tremble dance seems to stimulate other bees so that they start to process this nectar into honey. Um, I don't know if you saw this research. Uh, I just picked it up as we were getting ready to do the show today. But there was, I think I'm going to come out of Buenos Aires, uh, some research where 
uh, there's a new school of thought where some of the bees are basically saying, who are you going to believe, that idiot waggle dancing over there or your own actual eyes and memories and stuff like that. Sometimes bees apparently feel as though they have better, better information than what's in the waggle dance, and they'll just, <laughs> just ignore it and, and do stuff that they feel like they know better. Maybe they're a little bit more up to date than what's in the waggle dance. Um, so one of the questions we have here is, I mean, if all of that kind of stuff can happen— we we know i think we're pretty confident in saying that the bee is not conscious of being a bee and it's certainly not saying to be or not to be a bee but there there's something going on here david chalmers who's one of the theorists who really kind of is on the cutting edge of consciousness theory i think he talks about there's got to be a breaking point somewhere where you could point to something something a little bit more animate than a table and say well that thing's alive, but it really has no kind of consciousness. But whatever that thing is, Natasha, I think you're saying that's not a bee, right? The bee has something that we could call a kind of consciousness, maybe minus a few key elements. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things there. The first thing I'd say is it's kind of hard to know, and I think David Chalmers thinks this as well, um, whether there is actually a light switch moment or whether there's kind of a gray zone where things are kind of, sort of conscious, but not really conscious. But we're not really sure what that might look like or what that might feel like. Um, but the second thing in terms of, you know, um, whether bees, whether, whether we can kind of glean enough from the way a bee behaves to assume that it is conscious, there, I quote in the article a really fantastic cognitive scientist called Andrew B. Barron. Um, and he, he thinks that just because bees are really clever and do lots of interesting, cool stuff, that might not necessarily be a good reason for us to think that they're conscious. That just because a bee can learn lots of cool things or because they dance, that doesn't necessarily indicate to us that they're conscious or there might be better ways of getting to that information. Right. So then we have to sort of get a little bit more specific about what we're saying when we mean conscious. You know, this is now we really are at what Chalmers calls the hard problem. Um, Mm -hmm. So so part of the hard problem, I think, is that we doubt that a bee thinks it's a beautiful day or I really love that flower or the experience of being at this particular flower, uh, you know, getting this particular kind of pollen feels like such and such a thing that probably all of those things that are part of consciousness uh, are not part of what it's like to be a bee. What it's like to be a bee is probably a little bit more like like a, a, a mental mechanisms that's solving a bunch of problems, maybe. I, I don't know. What's your reaction to that? I don't know. I think it's, I kind of think it's sort of unanswerable. I mean, maybe I'm not a very imaginative person, but I very quickly kind of find myself bumping up against the limits of my imagination when I try to think about it, especially Especially when, um, I, when you think about some of the experiments that have been done that show the emotional states of bees, that if you give sugar to bees, it seems to make them happy. Or if you put bees in a jar and shake them, um, it seems to make them pessimistic. And those, to me, kind of suggest an additional kind of layer beyond problem solving. But it's really hard for me to get my own head around what that might feel like. Yeah, I feel like there's some strict constructionists who are going to have problems with that already, like with the with the word like happy. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I mean, how how would it be possible even to measure a bee's level of happiness? Well, I think in the specific um, study that I'm talking about, as I recall, they so they gave bees this sugar, 
um, and they observed changes in their behavior. And then what they did was they they did kind of, and I can't recall exactly how they did this, but they blocked um, dopamine in the bees' brain. Mm-hmm. So, which and and at that point, the bees didn't seem to respond to the sugar in the same way. Um, and from that, they deduced that it seems as though the sugar actually made the bees happy in the same way that it might cheer up a grizzling toddler, um, or you know, make make someone eating cake happier than they were before. Um, Natasha Frost, let me just ask you: How did you get interested in this particular question? How did you wind up writing about it? Oh well, so at NYU, um, towards the end of last year, there was a great big conference on animal consciousness, mm-hmm. and I'm very lucky to have a lot of friends who are in the NYU and Rutgers philosophy departments. Um, and so one of my friends at NYU asked if I wanted to come along, and so I just went to the first day on invertebrates but not octopuses, um, and uh, I was so kind of taken by this because I really like bees. I think they're really interesting and clever. Um, and I was so taken by Andrew's, uh, Andrew Barron's talk um, that I reached out to him afterwards, kind of with the view of doing a little bit more on it and on his work. Well, you certainly did do a little bit more, maybe a lot more on it. The article's great. It's, uh, once again, called What It's Like to Be—actually, it's the question. What's it like to be a bee? Uh, Natasha Frost writes for Atlas Obscura, one of our favorite publications. That were, That's where that article appeared. We're going to take a little break, and then we're going to tell you something else. We're going to tell you that you're doing honeybees wrong. be lie sleeping in the palm of your hand you're bewitched and deep in love's looked after land so as we're talking about bees I have to throw a monkey wrench into the bees, if that's possible, and say, what if we're thinking about this the wrong way? What if you're thinking about bees the wrong way? What if you're doing bees the wrong way? And by this, I mean that there is some new thinking that the honeybee is maybe overprized uh, uh, compared to other kinds of bees uh, and maybe to other kinds of pollinators. So we're going to talk about that and some other things with someone who knows a lot about this, and that is Kimberly Stoner, an associate agricultural scientist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and a member of Connecticut's Pollinator Advisor Committee. First of all, Kimberly Stoner, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. So let's talk. We, we have a bunch of things to talk about with you, but let's talk about this idea. It was reported on National Public Radio, among other places, this weekend. Maybe there's we're thinking about honeybees the wrong way, and that we need to think in a much more broad-spectrum way about pollinators in general and what they do. So, so help us understand that. So most people get their ideas about bees from honeybees, because they're the bees that are most familiar. But honeybees are not native to this place. They were brought here pretty much as soon as the Europeans got here. And they're really agricultural they are very much tied into our agricultural system. It, perhaps the most appropriate way to think of them is like livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, people keep bees in part because of the products that, I mean, honeybees specifically, in part because of the products we get from them, honey and wax. And we also keep bees because of the services that the honeybees give us in helping to pollinate crops fruit trees and pumpkins and various and nuts, almonds in particular. 
So they're very much part of our agricultural system. But when people are talking about an environmental issue, then honeybees can sometimes be a source of problems, just like anything done on a really large scale. So, you know, the big commercial beekeepers might have 10,000 colonies of bees, and each of those colonies has 30,000 or so honeybees in it. And that is a big biomass to keep going. Right. Um, it's almost it's almost as like, you, you know, we talk about monocultures in planting. You know, if you like just don't plant all broccoli and don't interplant anything else, you're sort of asking for trouble. In a way, it's like this, too. And we should say that another image we have of bees in this context is, you know, of these hives sitting in this fairly static way and the nice beekeeper coming out in his or her suit and the smoker and all that kind of stuff. But the kind of bees that you're talking about are often transported over long distances when all of the almond trees in California need these bees, right? The bees are brought to the trees? Right. Yes. Yes. So so huge numbers of bees, like a couple million hives of bees go to almonds in California. At this pretty close to this time of year, uh, late February, early March, when the almonds are in bloom. Right. So another thing that's happening there, well, we can, we, we can circle back to that, but you're also doing something that you typically don't do with, I mean, you can't like vaccinate bees or anything like that. So what, what you've got is like all these bees coming from all over the place and getting together in this kind of enormous almond-scented brothel where they're all running into one another. If you wanted to keep them from getting diseases, you probably wouldn't do stuff like that either. But we can come back to that. We can talk about sort of how to, you know, handle some of these issues of pollinators. But I, I want to just sort of stay on this other idea. So how many kinds of bees are there that aren't honeybees, Kimberly Stoner? There are many. So... Even in little Connecticut, we have 348 other species of bees besides honeybees. Worldwide, there's about 20,000 species of bees total, and eight of those are honeybees. So honeybees, in terms of numbers of species, are a tiny, tiny part of the bee world. Right. And I'm assuming that those other bees do all kinds of beneficent things, too, right? They all Do they all function as pollinators? All kinds of bees are, are, are pollinators? So all bees use pollen as their source of protein, with very, very few exceptions worldwide. But in general, that's what makes a bee a bee, is mm-hmm. it's using pollen as its source of protein. Some bees are parasitic on other bees, so they aren't pollinators, but for the most part, there's a lot of diversity of of bees that are important pollinators. The vast majority of those, for example, in Connecticut, the 349 species in Connecticut, the vast majority of them are pollinators. My sense is that if I'm just sitting by the garden beds looking at all the things flying around the bergamot and the flocks and stuff like that, there's some things that I'm looking at that I'm probably not thinking of as bees. Not all of these bees look like a bee from central casting, right? (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of small dark bees and metallic green bees. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, of diversity in what bees look like. Yeah. So from that point of view, and this is sort of we get it where we get into the complicated part of this. So if you've got on the one hand these big commercial producers who are breeding and creating these, you know, enormous 
huge, huge numbers of bees. I was trying to think of a good analogy. It was like the Borg Collective or something of bees. And resources start to get scarce in terms of flowering plants and trees and stuff like that. You could conceivably have this particular kind of monoculture honeybee competing for resources with this much more diverse group of other potentially useful bees, right? So when these migratory beekeepers are not in the process of pollinating a crop, they need to have a place for their, for their honeybee hives to go. And one of the issues that's come up is that sometimes they use public land, sometimes they use national forests, for example, as a place to put their hives that is free of a lot of the hazards to honeybees, like pesticides, has a lot of resources. And so they might put, there was a paper just recently that just talked about 40 hives. So just like maybe one tractor trailer load as opposed (laughs) to huge numbers, just 40 hives in a situation of public lands and they might stay there for three months. And the authors of that paper said that the amount of pollen that they collect in order to raise all their larvae for all those honeybees is the equivalent of what would be used by four million solitary bees. Mm. So solitary bees are bees that are not social. Each female has her own nest. And that's actually most species of bees. So, you know, just a few months of 40 hives in one spot in in a natural environment where there would normally be a lot of diversity of native bees could eliminate 4 million other bees. So when people are listening to a show like this one and these are nice national public radio listeners and they want to do the right thing and they want to help out. And I I do. I often will buy honey from small honey producers around the state. I now even have my own preferences of the honey I think tastes best. That's not really a problem. But if you really want to help the environment, if you want to help out with the problem we're starting to associate with honeybees, it sounds like what you need to do is have a lot, uh, like in your yard maybe, flowering trees and shrubs and plants and no pesticides, and then like everybody gets to use them. Does that is that a sensible approach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly want to say I am not negative about honeybees. I'm just saying they're part of agriculture. I'm, I work for an agricultural experiment station. I'm not opposed to agriculture. Right. But yeah, I would completely agree that habitat is one of the best things that you can do for the whole wide spectrum of pollinators, you know, other pollinators beyond bees as well. And a great way to do that is by planting flowering native plants. That's actually what I do in my own yard. And I'm going to have a conference to work with farmers and other landowners about how they can do that and how they can fit that into their farm plans and their what their goals for other kinds of goals for managing land. All right. So let's talk about this a little bit, too. So we established that there are lots and lots of kinds of bees that aren't honeybees. Most bees, whether they're honeybees or not, are pollinators, except for a few gangster bees who beat up other bees. Uh, and so now, now we're talking about pollinators, though. So bees are not the only pollinators. Help us understand uh, who's a pollinator. So a pollinator is any creature that moves pollen among plants of a species so that, you know, back to whatever it is, third grade biology, so that the pollen 
can move from the male parts of flowers to the female parts of flowers and fertilize the egg. And then seeds are created from that. So bees are pollinators. There are lots of flies that are pollinators. Moths. There are a few bats that are pollinators. There are a range of different creatures most of them insects of some kind, but a few other kinds of animals as well. So we're already beginning to, to touch upon this part of our conversation. You've already kind of set the stage for it, but let's say a little bit more about it. I said at the beginning that you, Kimberly Stoner, are a member of the Pollinator Advisory Committee. This is created by statute by the Connecticut State Legislature. So um, what is the mission of the Pollinator Advisory Committee? What are you guys thinking about? Mostly it's about habitat. It's mostly about how to create pollinators habitat in a lot of different kinds of situations. So in the law, there are specifics about farmland, about rights of way for utilities, roadsides, those kinds of things. Then there's also a member of the, of the committee who works on trying to breed honeybees for more resistance to the mites that are threatening honeybee health by both them, themselves and by the viruses that they carry. Right. So you got these um, these mites, the varroa mite, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the really right. bad ones. And so I, w- I want to come back to the first thing. So, I mean, yeah, ideally, if our friends at the utility are going to clear a big strip of land for transmission lines or something, I guess one of the things that you would be doing is saying, hey, well, once you do that, could you replant some laurel bushes or I don't know, what, what, what do you want them to do? It's not so much that they need to replant, actually, as that they need to not interfere with recovery of the vegetation after they have put in their power lines. Mm -hmm. So there is a move of some of the utility companies to put gravel roads, which interfere with the vegetation coming back, or to make these giant gravel pads that they put the utility poles on. And so to try and minimize that as much as we can so that the plants can come back, because the utility companies need to manage the plants so that they stay low and they don't interfere with the wires. So it's great what ecologists call early successional habitat, land that doesn't grow up into great big shady trees, but remains low and more diverse and lots of flowering plants. That all sounds pretty reasonable and and even possibly doable. So we should just quickly say, uh, you alluded to this also earlier in our conversation, but coming up on February 27th, it's the third annual Creating and Improving Pollinator Habitat Conference, or as it's better known, Bee Stock. Don't don't eat the purple uh, honeycomb. There's a warning out on the purple honeycomb. Um, so th- so this is an all-day conference at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, and I assume it's to talk about stuff like this, right? Yeah, it's to it's to work with people on how best to fit pollinator habitat into the various ways that they manage land. Can anybody come to this, or is it like you have to know somebody? We're, it's mostly geared towards farmers and large landowners, as opposed to like home gardeners. But anybody can come, and we have all the information for signing up 
on the Experiment Station website. Well, Kimberly Stoner, so I, I guess the last thing we'll say here, because we like to leave people with a takeaway, we kind of already did it. Is there anything else you want to tell people about just the property that they manage? Let's say somebody's sitting there with a half acre or an acre. I think we said flowering stuff, no pesticides. Anything else they need to know? Well, native plants. So the native plants evolved with the native bees and all the other actual native wildlife and the whole ecosystem. So native plants are best. So how do you know if it's, you ask the people at White Flower Farm or something, but how do you know in general if it's a native plant? Well, actually, the best thing to do is there's a, a website that's called Go Botany, which is created by the New England Wildflower Society. And they do a great job of telling you what are what's native where, you know, down to like the county level oh, across wow. New England. That's pretty cool. So, well, so that sounds great. So go botany. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can remember that. Also, we're just in a second. We'll give out Charlie Nardozzi's uh, home phone number. And you can call him day or night oh, yeah? uh, with okay, any question. Cool. He doesn't mind. You know, three in the morning, you start thinking about plants, just give him a call. Well, listen, Kimberly Stoner, thank you so much for talking to us about bees. Okay. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McBee, Buzzy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is friends with Samantha Bee, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jerry Seinfeld. Tomorrow, we revisit our show about arguing. And now, back to Colin. One thing that I have to say by way of doling out credit here is that in the intro, if you've been sticking around for that long in the intro, Kion Wolf, I've just been informed, played both bees. So you're kind of like James Franco or something, right, at this point? Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, you're so much better than James Franco. All right. So um, uh, finally, I also want to say, you know, we did do a show about bees, I don't know, like eight years ago or something. And this is a much better show about bees. So I feel like it also means that we're growing. Uh, anyway, we've got one more subject we want to cover here. Uh, Susan Milius is joining us, uh, life sciences writer at Science News Magazine. Back when we were doing bee shows about eight years ago, we were still pretty much dealing with the bad news about bees, which is colony colony collapse disorder. And we don't want you to think that the, the bees don't have any problems anymore because they do, and you're going to hear about that. Uh, but in fact, the good news, uh, if it's good news, Susan Milius, is that colony collapse disorder, as we know it, as a very specific kind of thing seems to be on the decline and has been for some time. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair. Though uh, we, I mean, we hardly see symptoms of it anymore. But as you pointed out, it is a very specific and very weird thing. And bees still have plenty of other troubles. Right. And we'll get into those troubles. But let's talk about that very specific thing, because this is kind of interesting. It's so specific. It's much more specific than a whole bunch of beekeepers saying, you know what? One third of my bees just died for no apparent reason. It's very, very specific in terms of what happens. And and therefore, because it's very specific, it makes sense that there's a single cause of it. There's something that scientists could see in every situation where this very specific kind of thing happened. But so far, nobody really knows what that specific thing is, right? Well, people have lots of ideas. But, okay, the mysterious specific thing was that bees didn't just 
fall over dead where they were, they disappeared. Most of the worker bees disappeared. And this, you didn't have bodies to examine. You'd, a beehive would be strangely quiet. They would, you'd go and look at it, and there'd be uh, not piles of dead bees. You wouldn't see uh, parasites that could have killed them off. You wouldn't even see workers' bees dead around the edges. You'd just see that a large number of bees were gone, disappeared, and there. But you knew they'd been there recently. They, you still had the little uh, sort of baby bees in their uh, in their cells. They, somebody had been feeding them and taking care of them recently. The queen was often there. There were still stores of honey. It was almost like a kidnapping. I mean, the the ideas that people had were very extreme. Right. So, yeah, it was almost like one of those, you know, Western ghost towns where there's suddenly nobody around. There's tumbleweeds blowing down the street and then partially consumed shots of whiskey sitting on the bar. Uh, but all the people who were there are gone, except, as you say, there are some remnants, some leftovers, the queen larvae, stuff like that. So um, was there like any particular theory? I mean, for example, uh, Israeli acute paralytic virus or paralysis virus was some uh, a phrase that got tossed around. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming because of the conversation we're having right now that that just wasn't present in every one of these situations. Right. And the maddening thing about it was, as you said earlier, that you had a mindset that there must be some single cause that caused this, that uh, we could look, we were looking for one thing that would cause such weird behavior over lots and lots of bees. But what people found was that some bees had uh, this virus that you mentioned, but others with the same symptoms didn't. And you could also find some healthy colonies that had signs of some of the viruses. So it was just perplexing. So another way to think about this, uh, and you heard uh, my previous conversation with Kimberly, I was kind of alluding to this. If you wanted to create a lifestyle where a lot of bees would get sick, if you wanted to create a lifestyle for bees, I mean, where a lot of bees would get sick, well, I mean, you couldn't do much better or much worse than the way bees are handled right now, right? They're trucked all over the place. They're put under a lot of stress. They get run down. Um, they're probably also in contact with an awful lot of other bees who wouldn't ordinarily be in contact with them. So, I mean, is some of this just, you know, bees are just in really crappy shape? Oh, I think that's exactly it. I think that's the takeaway message from the great mystery, that bees are not living right, thanks to us, not <laughs> that they have much choice in it. And I think you're exactly right, that, that uh, we couldn't do much worse in making uh, life for them. They, they eat they're forced to eat junk food. They're not getting enough variety in their diet. Uh, sometimes they, by junk food, I mean some pollen is better for bees than others. And there's research now that actually bees have do better when they have lots of different kinds of pollen, just the way that uh, our grandmothers told us we needed lots of different kinds of food on our plate and we needed to eat some vegetables uh, as well as other things. 
uh, there's variety in the kind of nutrients that bees get from pollen, but what happens is that they get trucked to a place where they have nothing but a bazillion acres of one kind of crop to eat for several months. Right. So, uh, you know, nature and conspiracy theorists abhor a vacuum. So with no concrete explanation, there are all kinds of exotic ideas about alien abductions of bees and jet contrails causing problems with bees and bees literally being raptured, uh, being uh, called home as part of some uh, religious end times. But the truth is probably a little bit more pedestrian. I mean, there's nothing more pedestrian than, look, the bees are out of shape. They're in, they're in stinky, lousy shape and they, they eat bad food and... <laughs> You know, I mean, so, so, I mean, and so that Susan would also say that even though the, the percentage by percentage, the, the colony collapse disorder as a specific thing is in decline, these bees are probably still pretty well set up for any kind of opportunistic virus or pathogen that wants to take them out. Exactly. And that is what we think happened. The most persuasive theories have not really been tested formally because it would be a fantastically difficult thing to do. But the scenario that I find most persuasive is that they uh, were in terrible shape. They weren't living right. They were surrounded. They had parasites and uh, lots of other diseases. They were run down. And then something, possibly a virus like the one you mentioned came through and caused the very specific symptoms of the bees flying away from the hive very far to die where it would be very difficult for anybody to find a huge pile of them. And presumably they were flying in lots of different directions and other things would see a dead bee and go, oh, yummy, before a scientist who was walking around could find it and they'd be scattered all over the place. But the fact that that particular symptom is gone, that doesn't mean that bees are in good shape. So we can't send bees to Canyon Ranch or anything like that to get in. I mean, part of the problem is bees are essentially, you know, as Kimberly was saying, they're livestock. They are yoked to a specific agricultural process, which for better or worse needs them, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Exactly. Are, are, are there, there aren't things that you can do very easily, I would assume, Susan, to, to take some of these stressors uh, out of bees' lives. Well, I think it is also possible that we, by paying more attention to native bees, and uh, there are people who are working on trying to make uh, bee, to make agriculture a little friendlier so that you get uh, native bees and honeybees mixing, working together. There are some crops that honeybees just don't like to deal with. For example, alfalfa. Alfalfa flowers have a sort of spring-loaded system and they bonk bees on the head when if they get jiggled in a certain way. And bees, honeybees don't like that. So there are other bees that know how to handle these tricky temperamental flowers. Anyway, there are lots of opportunities to make our pollination system better, even though I think in the end we are still going to end up treating bees as 
livestock. Right. If you're going to take millions of hives, uh, per our previous conversation with Kimberly, to to the almond groves uh, so that the almond industry can get the pollination done, uh, I mean, that's just going to put a lot of stress on them. It's going to put them into that kind of mono diet that you're talking about. Uh, it's going to put them in contact with other bees who may be passing pyrocytes parasites or pathogens uh, back and forth. Um, one thing that we could do is cut down on pesticides, right? There are sort of four Ps, poor nutrition, pesticides, pathogens, and parasites. W- one place would, to start, I would assume, would be the, um, the pesticides. Right. That is one place to start. And one of the things that is coming up now is that maybe it's not just the pesticide part of what we're spraying on the fields. It's some of the additional chemicals that are in there that help spread it. And these are not regulated or uh, even reported in great detail. And so working on trying to look at the whole picture of agricultural chemicals would be a good thing to do for bees. So, uh, first of all, we've been talking to Susan Milius, um, life sciences writer at Science News Magazine, who wrote The Mystery of Vanishing Honeybees is Still Not Definitely Solved. Uh, you ought to catch up with that article. We thought we'd let the bees have the last word today, sort of, or the last song, anyway. Uh, you're going to hear some music by Bione Samp, who translates bee behaviors and sounds into electronic music. Hopefully none of the bees start taking Molly and waggle dancing to the EDM but because uh, they got enough lifestyle problems but anyway here's a little of this as we go thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show <laughs>